thankful is a recurring exhortation in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Sixty-two times Paul speaks to the theme of thanksgiving. No other New Testament writer gives such a sustained emphasis on thanksgiving. And yet, major modern studies of Paul fail to grapple with this aspect of Christian worship. Paul's theology of thanksgiving is deeply embedded in all his letters and in the gospel itself. Let us take time and to do some self-examination, repentance, and ask God for a new resolve to be thankful. Of all people, Christians have by far the most for which to be grateful. Have you counted your blessings lately? If you do, you will be surprised by what the Lord has done for you. Well, to have a, an attitude of gratitude is not something that happens just once a year, hopefully, but something for the believer that is something you do all the time. It's got to be a way of life. And uh, I love this little, um, this little cartoon. It says, today, we're just saying thanks. Tomorrow, we'll go back to asking for stuff. Isn't that just so often the way it is for us as Christians? We forget that the mark of the believer is that we are people full of gratitude. Now, this idea of, of being thankful, being full of gratitude, uh, is, is something that is especially unique to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, mentions the necessity or the importance of giving thanks over 62 times. And what has always been a question for me is why haven't Bible scholars spent more time developing Paul's theology of thanksgiving? Thankfully, uh, there's been some new research, new books that have come out on the subject of Paul's theology of thanksgiving. And so for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to focus on Paul's theology of thanksgiving, and we're going to be looking at some of the passages throughout the New Testament uh, that Paul has, has contributed to. Now, let me just say this also. Uh, this series is not so much uh, an expository ser- series where we're going through a book. Rather, it's a theological series where we are going to be uh, appealing to and drawing from different books of the Bible. And so today, we're going to be looking at Colossians and what Paul tells us in Colossians about being thankful. But before we get into that, let me just say this. Social scientists and psychologists uh, are beginning to recognize the power of gratitude. In fact, uh, I've got a list of 31 benefits of being grateful, of having an attitude of gratitude. I'm not going to read all 31 of them to you, but let me just read uh, about half of them to you. The very first thing that you'll discover when you are a thankful person is it makes you happier. In fact, they say that it will make you 25% happier than you were uh, without giving thanks, without being grateful. So you and I understand as Christians that we need to be grateful, and it does make us happier. Now, the other thing it does is it makes people like us. Nobody likes to be around somebody who's whining and complaining and always grumbling and always unhappy, but people like to be around people that are grateful, people that have an attitude of gratitude. 
They say that a person with an attitude of gratitude is more optimistic, is less self-centered, can sleep better than everybody else, will actually live longer. And again, these are studies that back this up. Uh, Having an attitude of gratitude will make you healthier. And some studies suggest that the people who are, are grateful, who are thankful, will actually live months and even years longer than people who do not give thanks. Gratitude increases your energy levels. It reduces feelings of envy. It helps us relax. It improves your marriage. It makes you look good. How many know that when you, when you smile, when you've got uh, a happy face, you always look better than when you frown? It deepens friendships. It increases your productivity. Gratitude changes everything. When Gloria and I first started in the ministry, we actually got married here in Winnipeg and then, uh, and then immediately headed off to Greece. And um, one of the things that we're so grateful for were the people that remembered us in Greece. We were only earning about $600 a month. And uh, even back then, that wasn't very much money. And, uh, and so when, when a gift of, of money came from, from people that were praying for us or loved us, we just were so grateful for it. Well, we received a gift of, of cash from Gloria's uh, grandparents, and we, uh, we didn't respond right away. In fact, we were tardy in our response. Um, I don't even know if we intended to say thank you in any kind of a formal way. And then one day we got a letter from Grandpa Rudd who reminded us of the supreme importance of saying thank you when somebody does something nice for you. Now, I gotta tell you, Grandpa Rudd was not the kind of person that went around rebuking people. But I'm gonna tell you that uh, he's the gentlest, sweetest, kindest, most godly man, uh, one of the most godly men that I've ever known. And I'm gonna tell you, when he rebuked us, it really uh, was a turning point for me personally. It made me realize the power of gratitude. And for my own life, I find myself And maybe you feel that too. You feel that you're more willing and more apt to give to somebody who's grateful than to somebody who just takes it and never says thank you. We need to understand that as Christians, our responsibility is to be people who are full of thanksgiving and full of gratitude. Now, where we are responsible to be grateful to other people, we are primarily responsible to be thankful to the Lord for his goodness to us. Would you say amen to that? Everybody is on the same page. Uh, this, is, uh, this is why we come here to worship the Lord every Sunday. We've come to give thanks to God. Now, I'm gonna say this to you. The mark of a mature Christian is, is that that person is, is full of gratitude, who understands and recognizes acts of kindness, and particularly the kindness of God. Why is gratitude so important? Because when you are grateful, when you are recognizing the kindness of God, when you're recognizing the kindness of others to you, what's, what's happening is now your focus is off of yourself. I, would, I just read an interesting article that, that, that says that we are now living in a day and an age where this generation has an attitude of entitlement. You owe me. I deserve this. I want this. I should have this. I should get this. And, and just by virtue of the fact that, that I am who I am. 
this is really something new. We've never really seen this in, in, at any time in history, but this is really the new reality. Now, look, at if you're a Christian and your heart's full of gratitude, what's happening now is that your focus is off of yourself. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think of getting my focus off myself are the commands that Jesus Christ gives. Remember, Jesus was asked to sum up all the commandments, and he said, well, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others as you love yourself. When you are thinking about the kindness of others and the kindness of God, what you're doing is you are not focusing on yourself, and you are, in fact, loving the people in your life, and you're loving your God. That's what gratitude is. It's an expression of love and appreciation for others. So like I said, no one teaches more about gratitude than the Apostle Paul, and for five weeks, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on Paul's theology of thanksgiving. Now, the first thing that we see the Apostle Paul tell us uh, is that we need to be thankful. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 15. We need to be thankful. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. He's not saying, well, you know, if, 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 if I were you, I would, I would be grateful. He's commanding this. This is something you must do. This is in the imperative, do this. The question is this. Why should we be thankful? Now, if I ask that question on the street, people could come up with, with things like, well, I got a nice house to live in, and I've I live in Canada, and I live in a country that's free. And you might say, well, I've got clothes to wear, and I've got food to eat. These would be the typical kind of answers. But this is not what the Apostle Paul's talking about. He's not talking about just simply being grateful for the things that we have. There's something far more important and far deeper than that. And I'm going to tell you, the reason why you and I need to be thankful is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us at the cross. Did you get that? The reason you and I are full of gratitude is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The reason that you and I come to church on Sunday to worship God is to give thanks for what Jesus Christ has done for us. So so what we try to do here is we try to preach Christ and the cross. That's why we're called Cross Church, because we understand that this really is the foundation of our faith. You get that? That's who we are. We're a people that give God thanks for the cross. Now, look what Paul says to the Colossians. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in your sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. What's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying that God is going to pour out his wrath on people who live like this. And the Apostle Paul says, and that's what all of you were before you became Christians. Now let that just sink in for a moment. Every one of us here today until we became Christians, we're objects of the wrath of God. Did you get that? 
God's wrath rested upon you. Why? Because the Apostle Paul tells us that we were born enemies of God. Did you know that? So whenever I do a baby dedication, I just did Rajabu's little baby, that little baby is born an enemy of God. And you think, well, that cute little thing can't be an enemy of God. And yet this is what the Bible declares. This is who we are. We are objects of God's wrath. And it began in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobeying him, what did God promise Adam and Eve? He promised them that they would surely die on that day that they disobeyed. They would experience the wrath of God. So here's what we discover. We discover the message of God's wrath from Genesis right to Revelation. And in case anybody doesn't know what the word wrath means, we're talking about the anger and the retribution of God upon sinners. Now, I know you're, you're sitting here thinking this morning, Pastor Ellen, this is Thanksgiving. Lighten up a little bit. Do we have to get into the wrath of God on Thanksgiving? Well, in just a few moments, I hope that you're going to agree with me that this is actually a good topic for Thanksgiving. The fact of the matter is, is that all of us are objects of God's wrath. We are under the wrath of God until we have accepted Jesus Christ into our lives. And I'm not talking about just some of us. I'm talking about all of us. That's what Paul says here. In these, you too once walked. You too walked in sexual immorality, impurity, and passions, and evil desires, and, and greediness, which is idolatry. That's who we are. Just kind of look to the side, that person beside you. They're sinners too. I see someone poking their husband right now. That's, that's who we are. Now listen, we need to understand who we are without Christ, who we were before Christ, to understand why we need Christ and why we need to be thankful. So with the gospel message is the message of the bad news. And we'll read about that more in just a moment. But understand that Jesus Christ has given us an escape from the wrath of God. We call this, if you want the theological term for it, I know Nick Hack likes these big terms, we call this the propitiatory Christ, the propitiation. In other words, in Christ we hide. He is our hiding place. Folks, listen, this is the love of God that he has provided a hiding place, a place to hide from his wrath. Now you say, Pastor, can't we just talk about the love of God? No one wants to hear about the wrath of God. I know churches that have, have forbidden any discussion about sin or the wrath of God or hell or judgment. Don't talk about that stuff. That's going to hurt people's self-esteem. It'll make people feel bad. Can't talk about that. Folks, if you're going to cut out the wrath of God, you're going to cut out massive chunks of Scripture. In this Old Testament alone, it talks about the wrath of God over 600 times. And in the New Testament, you think, well, the New Testament's better, right? Because we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. And yet in the New Testament, we find the wrath of God spoken of 42 times. The, the message about the wrath of God starts in Genesis and goes right to the end of Revelation. It starts in Genesis chapter 2, the day that you eat the fruit, you die. That's the wrath of God poured out. 
You get to the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, and almost the last verse, and it says, if anybody adds to this, to this revelation or takes away from this revelation, then all the plagues that are mentioned in the, in the revelation are gonna come upon you. That's the wrath of God. Now, the question is this, how do we escape this wrath? Because the wrath of God is a real thing. And until we receive Christ, we are objects of his wrath. The Bible reminds us constantly, escape the wrath of God, escape it, run from it. And his wrath is the reaction against all sin. Do you understand that today? There's not one person sitting here today that can say, well, I'm, a, I'm basically a good person. No, you're not. The Bible declares that you're not. There's none righteous. No, not even one. There's nobody who seeks for God. That's why in our church services, in our, in our mess, services every Sunday, I'm not aiming it at people who are not converted. I'm aiming it at the converted and at those that God is drawing to himself. Because the Bible is clear, there's nobody who seeks for God. So this idea of being a seeker-sensitive church, a seeker-friendly church, is bogus. It's not in Scripture. Because if you, before you're converted, you don't seek for God. But the good news is that Jesus, by his Spirit, draws people to himself and opens your eyes, takes the blindness from your eyes, re removes the veil so that you can see the loving God, the God who has sent his Son to save you from the judgment that's to come. Hallelujah, somebody, hallelujah. And so the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, we have painted, the church has done a really bad, really bad thing. And I'm talking about the church in general. But we have painted God as a loving God who just, is kind of like a, a senile old man that just kind of winks at sin. Oh, well, it's not a big deal. I'm going to tell you something, my friends. Every sin and all sin is a big deal to God. Every sin will come under the punishment of God. Understand that today. There is no escape. So we need to know what true love is. And here's what true love is. For God so loved the world that he what? He overlooked our sin. Does it say that? For God so loved the world that he ignored our sin. For God so loved the world that he pretended we didn't sin. No, it doesn't say that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus Christ, my friends, is the hiding place. He's, he's, the, he's the cleft in the rock. He's, that's where you go to be safe from the storm of God's wrath. Now, you could say, well, Pastor Allen, can't we just focus on the love of God? And I'm telling you, this is the love of God. He sent his son Jesus as a hiding place for all who would escape God's wrath. You see, God is not just a God of love. He is also a holy God. As a holy God, he is a just God. He is a judge. And so we understand that wrath, watch this, wrath is a function of holiness, of God's holiness. You need to be born again. You need to put your faith in Christ. 
You need to hide in Jesus. So, so here's the neat thing. When I was a little boy, I knew that I needed to be converted. I, I was just eight years old. I knew I was a sinner already. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt I needed to become a Christian. And the neat thing is on that day when I gave my life to Jesus, when I said, Lord, I accept you as my Savior, I felt the weight of the world lift from my shoulders. Can anybody identify with that? I knew, I knew, I knew that my sins were forgiven. I knew that my life was made right with God. Why? I'm hiding in Jesus. And I'm no longer under judgment. I'm no longer under the wrath of God. I am free. I am free. And the one whom the sun sets free is free indeed, hallelujah. We're free of the wrath of God. We have this new life. Now that's the message, my friends, of the whole Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. This notion that we don't need the Old Testament is absolute nonsense. The whole Old Testament's pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our hiding place. You know, wisdom and logic tells us that there must be a judgment. Is Hitler, Adolf Hitler, is he gonna get off scot-free? No way. What about Stalin? No. And Pol Pot? No. And what about Saddam Hussein? And what about those people, those wicked men who are trafficking children, sex trafficking them? Are they gonna get off scot-free? No way. There's gonna be judgment. And we all want judgment. In fact, you'll hear people say there's a special place in hell for those people. Well, guess what? There's a special place in hell for you too. But I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. I'm not as bad as as a sex trafficker. I'm not as bad as Stalin. But the Bible declares there's none righteous, no, not one. And so what we understand, my friends, is that it doesn't matter how much sin there is in your life, it's enough to draw the wrath of God. And so we need a savior. And that, my friends, is why God sent a savior to us. He didn't send us a life coach. Did you notice that? He didn't send us, he didn't send us somebody who could tell us how we could have our best life now. He didn't tell, send someone who would be a success coach, how we can be successful. He didn't send us a marriage counselor. He didn't send us a professor, an educator, a scientist. He sent us a savior because that is our critical need. We need a savior who will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. So we find this in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. The very first thing we read in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when it comes to preaching, is John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ and his message. And what does John the Baptist say? He says, he stands up and he says, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the message. We need to repent. We need to, we need to be free of our sin. Did you get that? We need to be free of our sin. Now, the good news, my friends, is that we can be. And that's what Jesus Christ is all about. He is the way that we are set free from our sin. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, I'm no longer a slave to sin. Hallelujah. Did you hear that, people? 
I am no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. When you put your faith in Christ, now you are a slave to Christ. I love Bob, uh, was it Bob Dylan? Who sang back in the 70s, you gotta serve somebody. Remember that? Anybody remember that song? You gotta serve somebody. And that's the, that is the truth about every one of us. You're gonna serve somebody. And I'm gonna tell you today, that the good news is that the one to serve is Jesus Christ because he is the propitiatory cover. He is your protection. He is the solid rock. He's the fortress. He's the hiding place. You are free, free from the judgment of God. And then, folks, doesn't matter what you've done because I know some of you are sitting here thinking, I can't see how God could forgive me for what I've done. I, Pastor Allen, if you knew the sin of my life, if you knew what I've done, I don't need to know what you've done. God knows all about it. And the good news is that I don't find one footnote, one exception in the Bible that says God can forgive everybody except for this one thing. Except the one thing, which is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What is that? Well, it's just rejecting God. That's the only thing God can't forgive. You reject God, then God can't forgive you. But for absolutely everything else, you may be forgiven, no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what your thought life is like, no matter how you've suffered or struggled, God can and will forgive you. Now, how important is this message that I'm sharing with you today? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we understand that the message of the wrath of God is a message that must be preached. We must preach this. Folks, let's get, if there's no wrath of God, if there's no judgment, what's the gospel? There's no, there's no need for a gospel. The gospel is the gospel, is the good news because of the wrath that is to come. We recognize that. The Apostle Paul, when he came preaching, hey, if you wanted to win someone to Christ, how would you begin? Now, in my natural mind, or my natural instinct would be to, to just do it gently, don't ruffle feathers, don't make anybody feel bad. Not the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter one, verse 17, he says this. He says, the good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. What does that mean? You become a Christian by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Jesus, I am lost for eternity with you. God, I want you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's the good news. You do that and you're free of sin. And then watch this, immediately the next verse, verse 18, Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Pa Paul, slow down there. Don't be so harsh. Don't be so cruel. Don't offend people. You're going to drive them away. You want to keep them close. Don't offend them. I have, has anybody ever heard of dolphin evangelism? Has anybody ever heard of that? That was a big thing about 10 years ago called dolphin dolphin. dolphin evangelism as opposed to shark evangelism. 
And the idea is we have to go gentle, we have to try to win people over, give them a free can of Coke, give them a free light bulb, give them, give them something free and just tell them God loves you and then hopefully that way we'll draw people to Jesus. That's not what Paul does, Paul's a shark. He's going for the kill. You're, you're dying. Without Christ, you're dying and you're going to hell. It's kind of offensive, isn't it? We don't want to hear that. And yet that's exactly what we find in any message that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone was just telling me this morning of a, of a young man who is not a Christian from a different faith background, and he says, the one thing I want to know is what happens when I die. The very intelligent young man in university, what happens after I die? Now, here's a guy that wants to hear the truth. He doesn't want to hear sugar-coated anything. He doesn't want me to be running around in circles and, and running around the issue. He wants me to get right to the point. What happens when I die? And the Bible tells us clearly, if you die without Christ, you face the wrath and judgments of God. I have a cousin that was visiting a few years back said, I hate it when pastors talk about hell. This is a woman that's gone to church her whole life, but she just, oh, she hates that. Doesn't want to hear about that. And yet this is the message, the message of Christ. Don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. Be afraid of the one who can kill your soul and your body and send it to hell. Pastor Allen, I was not expecting this on Thanksgiving Sunday. Well, my friends, here's what Jesus says. He says, the one who believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. The one who rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. This is John chapter three. Does John chapter three ring a bell with anybody? John 3, 16. We all know that verse, for God so loved the world. But understand that the rest of the message of John 3 is that God's wrath remains on you until you are converted, until you are born again. So, what you need to understand this morning, and this is so critical for all of us, is that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Does everybody understand this? Jesus Christ is your only hope. There's no other, there is no other way. There's no other religion. Jesus Christ is the only way. Now, here's the thing that I find extremely shocking. There's all kinds of, uh, of uh, surveys being done all the time. And a survey was done that said over 60% of people who declared themselves as evangelicals, which is what we are, 60% believe that there were multiple ways to God, multiple ways to heaven. Is anybody shocked by that? Well, the reason why people are confused and don't know what the truth is is because it's not preached anymore. Because pastors are afraid to stand up and do what I'm doing right now. I'm telling you about the wrath of God that's to come. And by the way, that comes from Jesus' mouth. Jesus himself declares this. You need to understand that. And Martin Luther understood it. He understood it well, and he was terrified, terrified that if he should die, he would go to hell. And what a wonderful day when he discovered that the way that he would find eternal life was by believing in the Son of God. 
It's by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Does everybody understand that? This is the way that we have salvation. Sola gratia, sola fide, solo Christo. This was the great rallying call of the Reformation. This is how we have salvation. This is how we are free from the wrath of God. This is how you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you die, you go to heaven, no matter what. Do you have that assurance? You can have that assurance right here and right now by simply saying, Jesus, I put my faith in you and in you alone. Now, Paul tells us, Colossians 3.15, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Always be thankful. No matter what, always be thankful. Does anybody remember that old hymn that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Folks, we do not add to Jesus. It's Jesus alone. You can imagine my shock this past week when I received a blog from a New Testament professor who said that Jesus is not enough. It was addressing a certain need in the, in the community, in the, in the community, the Canadian community, and he said, Jesus is not enough. I'm not going to get into the discussion of it. But I was shocked that a New Testament professor would not understand that Jesus Christ alone is enough. I'm going to tell you something right now. With all the problems in the world, in our community, in our society, the solution is, in fact, Jesus alone. What happens, my friends, when a man or a woman is born again? I'll tell you what happens. His home changes. The children are happy. His marriage is happy. The community changes. The city changes. When the great revivals in Wales broke out, you know what happened? There's nobody in jail anymore. And the guys that had, that was their job to protect the prison. They had nothing to do. We got no prisoners. They all got saved. They all became Christians. There's no more crime happening. And and what's worse is that these, these Welsh converts, they quit going to the bars and they weren't drinking anymore. Nobody's drunk. Nobody, no more domestic violence. No more fighting. Women weren't being abused. Children weren't being abused. It revolutionized a society, a whole culture. Now, here's what's happening today in our culture. We are busy trying to fix the problems of the world with the solutions and the tools of the world. But Jesus declares that it's Christ alone. When Jesus Christ gets hold of a person's heart and transforms a man or a woman, it changes everything. It changes the community. It changes the home. It changes marriages and relationships. It changes everything. And so I'm declaring to you today that Jesus alone is enough. Christ alone is enough. I send that that blog to Pastor Chris and to Taryn. 
Just wanted, I, didn't, I didn't put a comment on there. I didn't ask, what do you think? I didn't ask what your opinion is. Just sent it to them. And their reaction was both the same. Thank God. Taryn said, whatever happened to Christo, uh, solo Christo, Christ alone? That was, that was one of the foundational doctrines of the Reformation. We don't need the ideas of humans. We need Christ alone. And Pastor Chris said, this is absolute rubbish. And then quoted a pastor friend who said, what our people need more than anything is Jesus. So we don't add to the message of Christ. We call men to repentance. Have you noticed that in the scripture that Jesus and the apostle Paul, not not once are they addressing the social evils of the time. Did you notice that, anybody? Why? Because Jesus and then the apostle Paul were convinced that the solution to the problems of the world was that men's hearts were converted, that people were hidden in Christ and free of the wrath of God. And you may be sitting here today and you say, you know, my feelings, my feelings are in opposition to my faith. I have a belief in, in Christ, but my feelings want me to do something other than what Christ wants me to do. And I'm going to tell you that is a common problem for every single person sitting in this room today. And so do we say. Well, we'd say what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. I beat my body into submission. I force my body, I force myself to surrender to Jesus and obey Christ. Everybody get that? That's how, you, that's how you're a Christian. You don't follow your feelings. Your feelings will always lead you astray. But the truth of Jesus' word is going to always lead you to eternal life. Hallelujah. That's what we believe. That's what Martin Luther believes, Wingley, John Calvin, Jonathan Edward. We're justified by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. And that's why you come to church every Sunday to worship the one who sent his son to give thanks for Jesus, who's my hiding place, for Jesus, who protects me from the wrath of God. And don't, don't be misled here, my friends. This protection from the wrath of God is the love of God. That's what the love of God is. It's not, I got a nice new car. I got, a nice, I got nice clothes. I got my jacket. That has nothing to do with the love of God. The love of God is seen in Jesus Christ who protects us and saves us from sin. So here's what Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians 2.8. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. This is what we're seeing happening amongst believers today. Christians, pastors, theologians, Bible college professors getting caught up with the empty philosophies and the high-sounding nonsense of the day. Folks, I want you to know something. You can depend on your pastor here at Cross Church to be faithful to preaching Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's what this church is about. Now, you and I are called to be thankful, 
because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Look at Paul says to the Romans, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. What does it mean justified? It means we've been made right with God. You and I, once you become a Christian, you're made right with God. You can go freely to his throne and bring all your petitions, all your prayer requests, all your needs. You can bring it right to God because of what Jesus has done. Would anybody say that that was the love of God? It has nothing to do with your car, your house, or your money, or your clothes. That's utter nonsense. That is the stupid, empty philosophies of this world that pastors on TV are preaching on a regular basis. It's no wonder the church in North America is anemic and sick and dying. The true love of God is, a, is the love that delivers us from the wrath of God. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Hallelujah. That, my friends, is what our faith is all about. And that is what we give God thanks for. That's why Paul says, be thankful. Do you understand the inheritance that you have through Christ? Do you understand what God has given you? This, my friends, is the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me just sum it up for you like this. God shows his love for us by telling us how we may escape his wrath. He sent us Jesus Christ. And you and I, when we put our faith in Christ, we hide in Christ and we enjoy sweet communion with God. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you right now for Jesus Christ the great sign, the great gift of your love for us. And we thank you that through Christ, we are free of your wrath. Oh God, how much you loved us, how much you cared for us. Father, we pray today that you would give us the grace and the strength to listen to the words of Jesus and to live by the words of Jesus. Father, to not give in to our, our sinful feelings, our sinful uh, desires and our sinful longings. Help us rather, oh God, to say, God, I want you and I want you alone. Thank you today, Lord, that when we call on your name, when we confess our sins to you, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh God, we pray as we go through the theology of, of thanksgiving, we pray that over these next few weeks that thanksgiving would rise in our hearts and that we would be the most thankful people who've ever lived. We pray, oh God, that everybody who hears any conversation that comes from our mouth, that they would hear of our gratitude for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. God, we pray, take us from this place with joy and with thanksgiving and with gratitude for what Christ has given to us, and that is eternal life, free of the wrath of God. Hallelujah, Lord. This is ours, this assurance, this confidence that we will spend eternity with you because we put our faith in Jesus. Hallelujah. God, go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, be thankful. <laughs>